0: chapter three part two of twenty years of the republic eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five by harry thurston peck this librivox recording is in the public domain memories of the past part two horatio seymour was the ablest the sanest and the most wisely patriotic of all those democratic statesmen who throughout the period of the civil war maintained on constitutional grounds an opposition to the administration of president lincoln the year eighteen sixty two was marked by one of those widespread waves of depression and discontent which from time to time swept over the people of the north and made the union cause seem almost hopeless from the armies in the field there came no cheering news of victory from washington there was poured forth an endless tale of mismanagement of peculation and of jobbery such as sickened the moral sense of the whole nation the edict of emancipation was for the moment unpopular with the country the suspension of the habeas corpus act the frequent military arrests of private citizens and the seeming incapacity of congress and the president drove thousands of patriotic citizens into the ranks of the opposition hence at the autumn elections six states note thirteen page one hundred eleven which two years before had voted solidly for mr lincoln now left the republican column and elected democratic governors even the president's own state declared against him it was however the defection of new york which caused mr lincoln the most serious concern for this was the richest and most populous of all the states and mr seymour who now became his chief executive was a political opponent to be reckoned with he had been described by republican speakers as hostile to the cause of union and as one who sympathized with treason that he should have been chosen governor of new york seemed a misfortune almost comparable with disaster in the field but those who thus misrepresented mr seymour had little knowledge of his character and principles not lincoln himself was a purer patriot nor more devoted to the cause of national unity his public utterances were wholly admirable at this moment he had said in october the destinies the honour and the glory of our country hang poised upon the conflict in the battlefield we tender to the government no conditional support he spoke of this wicked and mighty rebellion and he called god to witness that i would count my life as nothing if i could save the nation's life of the president he always spoke with courtesy at a time when many others styled him the illinois baboon his opposition was not personal at all nor was it directed against the efficient conduct of the war what mr seymour criticised and what thousands of republicans also criticised note fourteen page one twelve was the arbitrary conduct of secretary stanton the waste and corruption which honeycombed the administration of the army and the suspension by military order of those personal rights which are guaranteed by the constitution to every american but as governor of new york mr seymour was as energetic in giving military support to the president as had been his republican predecessor when lee invaded pennsylvania in eighteen sixty three seymour telegraphed to secretary stanton i will spare no effort to send you troops at once and at the battle of gettysburg there were present nineteen new york regiments which had been hurried to the front by seymour's orders in two dispatches secretary stanton by the personal direction of the president telegraphed his thanks to governor seymour for his energy activity and patriotism note fifteen page one twelve when the draft riots broke out in new york city just after gettysburg governor seymour was hastily summoned The greater part of the town was already in the hands of a furious mob. The police had been routed, houses had been sacked and burned, Negroes had been hanged, beaten to death, and even burned. The city was stripped of troops, and there was no physical force at hand to quell disorder. Governor Seymour addressed the rioters from the steps of the city hall, and endeavored by persuasion and by promises to stay the work of devastation. He began his speech with the words, "'My friends,' and for years his employment of these words to a crowd of rioters was flung at him as a bitter taunt such said his opponents are governor seymour's friends but of course the words were a mere form of speech had he addressed the rioters as gentlemen he would undoubtedly have been far less criticised yet the ruffians whom he fearlessly confronted were no more his friends than they were gentlemen a sufficient answer to his enemies is to be found in the fact that within a year the republican legislature of the state passed resolutions highly commending governor seymour for his action at that critical time there are some who hold that any opposition to the national government in a time of civil war is both unwise and unpatriotic a careful study of the years from eighteen sixty two until eighteen sixty four will surely not sustain this view an opposition such as that of seymour was in the highest degree salutary and even necessary to the union cause for that cause had been seriously compromised by those acts of the administration which mr seymour most urgently opposed nothing so estranged mr lincoln's loyal following at the north as did the series of military arrests in parts of the country that were wholly peaceful and where the courts were open there is no evidence that the president himself ever personally ordered any one of these arrests and it is known that he often disapproved of them yet of course he was officially responsible for them and they proved in the end to be in the highest degree impolitic and useless it shocked the anglo-saxon respect for the orderly processes of law to witness old men of seventy dragged from their beds at midnight and hurried to prison by squads of soldiers under circumstances of inexcusable brutality the arrest of children for the offense of selling newspapers of which some military commander disapproved was even more obnoxious in fact had not congress taken the matter in hand and limited the exercise of this arbitrary power the violence which had already broken out in the republican states of pennsylvania wisconsin and illinois would have kindled at the north a backfire so formidable as to paralyze all military operations at the front mr seymour's opposition therefore was justified both in reason and from the standpoint of the national welfare it led the president and congress to abstain from continuing a course of conduct which would have imperilled the cause of union the task of one who acts in opposition is inevitably a thankless task since it is always certain to be misunderstood and to be made the subject of the cruellest reproach all the more honour then to those who like seymour have the high moral courage to perform that duty as he has performed it without expectation of reward and in a way that leaves after the lapse of years no trace of bitterness behind note sixteen page one fourteen mister tilden was in a sense governor seymour's political successor he is the supreme illustration in american political history of sheer intellect unrelieved by any of those human qualities which win men's love as well as their respect born with a body so frail that he never knew a day of perfect health he had no boyhood but even as a child his mind was given wholly to the mastery of government and politics in his father's house he heard political discussions between some of the most adroit and wily party managers of that day by the time when he was fifteen years of age he was as well informed in american political history and in the manoeuvres of political strife as any one of those whose revelations he had listened to so eagerly he studied law and soon rose to high rank in that profession with its pursuit he blended political ambition and both in law and politics he brought to bear all the resources of a cold calculating nature unmoved by passion or by prejudice able to bide its time to temporize to dissemble and to scheme not merely for the present but for the distant future he knew that money was a power in political life and he accumulated a large fortune as a railroad lawyer making his political prominence also a source of gain though as a matter of far-seeing wisdom setting his face against political corruption at the time when tweed and his vulgar bandits began their sway in the city of new york tilden made no sign of opposition he even used this tawdry despot for his own ends until the moment came when he could strike with deadly certainty and then the ring was smashed and its several judges barnard cardoza and McCunn, were driven from the bench elected governor of new york in eighteen seventy four he ruled the state with such intelligent integrity as to win for himself in eighteen seventy six the democratic nomination for the presidency the nation at large wearied by the scandals and corruption of grant's second term saw in tilden the very leader demanded by the hour a true reformer fit to cleanse and purify the departmental sewers at washington in the election he received not only a majority of the popular vote but likewise a majority of twenty votes in the electoral college to destroy this majority it was necessary for his opponents to alter the result in the states of south carolina florida louisiana and oregon this was accomplished by the superb political management of the republicans who received their cue for mr chandler's famous telegram claim everything through the electoral commission voting always on strictly party lines eight to seven the four doubtful states were given to hayes who was declared elected by a majority of a single vote the announcement was made only two days before the new president was sworn in there can be little doubt that mr tilden was rightfully elected such was apparently the view of president grant himself if we may credit the statement of his intimate friend mr g w childs every democrat in the country was convinced of it and not a few republicans had mr tilden been a different sort of man he would perhaps have said the word to precipitate a civil war but he was not the one to seek his ends by force and so he accepted a result which he and all his friends believed to be a triumph of injustice It must be said, however, that the Electoral Commission was not invented as a partisan device, but as a means of securing an honest decision. In Congress, the bill creating it was passed in each House by a combination of Republicans and Democrats. Had the Democrats voted solidly against it, the Commission could not have been established. It is not unfair to say that the Commission was more truly a Democratic than a Republican measure, for it was the Republicans who at first feared that it would give the presidency to Tilden therefore tilden's party was logically bound to accept the final verdict even though it believed that the majority of the commission had acted not as judges but as partisans mr tilden was never so highly honored by his countrymen as in the hour of his defeat unfortunately for him the scandal of the so-called cipher telegrams robbed him to a great degree of the respect and sympathy which until then had been so freely given him in january eighteen seventy seven a number of telegrams relating to the election of the previous year were delivered to a committee of the house of representatives of which the chairman was a democrat more than thirty thousand other telegrams were furnished to a committee of the senate of which a republican was chairman mr william h orton the president of the western union telegraph company a thick and thin republican had first allowed certain members of his own party to examine these dispatches and to abstract such ones as they required many of the telegrams were written in cipher and in a mysterious manner they found their way to the office of the new york tribune where some ingenious person worked out the key to their decipherment on october eighth eighteen seventy eight 1878, that paper published the translation of a number of telegrams concerning the disputed florida election and on the sixteenth of the same month it gave the translation of another batch of telegrams relating to the canvas in south carolina from these it appeared that offers had been made in behalf of the returning boards in florida and south carolina to cast the electoral votes of those states for mr Tilden in return for a large sum of money it subsequently became known that like offers had been made to mr a s Hewitt by persons representing the louisiana returning board some of the cipher dispatches had been addressed to mr tilden's residence in new york city and had been delivered to his nephew colonel pelton the republicans at once charged that tilden had endeavored to secure the presidency by bribery or at any rate that he had been in negotiation with scandals concerning such a plan Mr. Tilden wrote to the chairman of the Congressional Subcommittee, then sitting in New York, and asked to be heard as to the inquiry which it was making. He appeared before it on February ninth, eighteen seventy nine, and was subjected to a rigid examination by Mr. Thomas B. Reed, a Republican member of the committee. Tilden was in a state verging on physical collapse. Partly paralyzed, and with limbs contracted, he dragged himself haltingly to his seat, and gave his answers in a voice so feeble and so hoarse as to be almost inaudible. As the probe was relentlessly applied, his pallid face became mottled with excitement, his lips twitched, and his hands trembled until the sight of him was painful. Note seventeen. Page one eighteen. If one were to base a final judgment upon the record of this examination, it could scarcely be in Mister Tilden's favor he answered clearly with regard to every circumstance which helped his case but at times he seemed afflicted with a most extraordinary lapse of memory and many of his answers were vague evasive and unsatisfactory he seemed to avoid all categorical replies i presume i did i do not remember i guess not i may have done so i do not believe so i think i did not so far as i remember i think not i may have seen it this is the way in which mr tilden again and again made answer the effect of his examination upon public opinion was distinctly bad it lost him the sympathy of thousands of republicans and to some extent it led his own followers to qualify the confidence which they had had in him he seemed for the time no longer the stern reformer and high-minded patriot but rather the sly and foxy politician stooping at least to contemplate dishonor that mr tilden was actually unaware of what was going on in eighteen seventy seven and that he knew nothing at all of the telegrams which were received in his own house by a near relative and in a matter of such vital interest to him is very difficult to believe that he had any corrupt purpose however is quite incredible he may have hoped to lay a trap for his opponents or to secure evidence to discredit the venal canvassers of the doubtful southern states this is at any rate a reasonable theory the facts undoubtedly acquit him of anything more serious these facts are very convincingly summed up by mr tilden's biographer mr bigelow only one electoral vote was required to elect Tilden. the votes of three states were in the market and at a price which tilden could easily have paid tilden did not get that vote hayes needed all the votes of three states all were for sale hayes got them all and was elected and within six months after his inauguration every person known to have been concerned in securing or in giving those votes from the highest to the lowest received an office or the offer of one from mr hayes tilden as a politician was a combination of jefferson and van buren his hold upon his party was stronger than that of any other leader since jackson's time an admirer wrote of him his qualities were of the solid and reflective type that are slowly recognised by the masses but when once perceived constitute the strongest claim upon public attention and yield to their possessor the largest influence with his fellows the secret of mr tilden's success in life as a lawyer a man of business and a statesman was the thorough way with which he did everything that he attempted to do he never took anything for granted he never went into court with a case until he had searched every nook and cranny of the law he never made an investment until he had personally studied the last details of the business he never went into a political campaign without looking out after every individual voter in the campaign of eighteen seventy six he took everything into account up to the closing of the ballot boxes and he beat his opponents according to the rules of the game if the election laws of the whole country had been like those of new york he would have been president of the united states as a man he was one to be respected but hardly to be liked his whole life was given up to his ambition he had a lust for power and to this all else was sacrificed his feeble health contributed to isolate him from the great mass of humanity he was all intellect and this intellect was dominated always by the spirit of calculation frugal cautious cold-blooded he was absolutely destitute of the emotions and the passions which are felt by normal men his friendships such as they were never led him into any warmth of feeling he treated his friends as though at some time they might become his enemies in all the years of his life he never loved a woman the very naive biography of mr tilden written by his friend and literary executor says of him tilden never married only because he never felt the need of a wife women were so far as he could see so unimportant to his success in any of the enterprises upon which his heart was set that marriage never became a subject of leading interest note eighteen page one twenty one when he became widely known as a candidate for the presidency many foolish women addressed him in letters of mawkish sentimentality some of them perhaps through a sort of hero-worship and others for the reason that he was very rich and still remained unmarried it was not a very amiable trait in mr tilden that he carefully preserved these letters and left them to his biographer and literary executor who in his turn saw fit to publish extracts from them yet perhaps this circumstance affords the most convincing of all evidence to show how far was mr tilden from entertaining any romantic or chivalrous regard for women just as when a boy he had no part in sports and games never whittled a stick tossed a ball climbed a tree ran a race or pulled an oar so in his maturer years he had few pleasures such as render the mind elastic and cultivate the taste he knew little or nothing about art music he never cared for he read much but solely because he sought the power which knowledge gives physical exertion was distasteful and he enjoyed massage because it gave him exercise without exertion such was mr tilden less a man than a highly intelligent machine a machine which worked with absolute precision but in which the only thing to be admired was the perfection of its mechanism winfield scott hancock was the knightliest figure in all the hosts which the norse sent forth to battle in the days of the civil war bred at west point he had served under scott during the mexican campaign where in the desperate assault on molino del rey and in the fierce fighting at contreras and cherubusco he won instant recognition for his intrepid courage hancock was indeed born to the profession of war he was thoroughly a soldier to the very deepest recesses of his nature unlike grant he loved the stir and even the outward pomp of martial life the drum-beat and the bugle-call were music to his ears the battle-smoke was incensed to his nostrils when the cannon sounded their tremendous diapason when the field was swept by shell and musketry when ranks were shattered and columns were split into chaos when the enemy pressed most fiercely upon front and flank and when mere holiday soldiers became dazed and panic-stricken then hancock rose to the full height of his splendid powers the shock of battle cleared his brain and gave to him a joyous confidence note nineteen page one twenty two and he had the instinct of authority he loved command and he exercised it with the majesty and the finality which are the essence of a great military leader's influence he was an inspiring virile figure fully six feet in height handsome with the mien of a conqueror gracious and high-bred and of a winning courtesy which he exhibited no less to his foes than to his chosen comrades. When the civil war broke out, no serious tasks at first were given him, but ere long, in the indecisive fight at Williamsburg, note twenty page one twenty two, he had a chance to show his mettle at the head of a brigade which he had drilled into a splendid fighting force he turned the tide of battle defeated the two able confederate leaders hill and early and by a combination of audacity and cool judgment prevented a grave disaster to the union arms it was of this action that mcclellan telegraphed his famous comment hancock was superb promoted to the command of a division he was present on the field of antietam he fought like a hero of chivalry at fredericksburg where burnside's blunder hurled a whole army against the flaming slopes of mary's hill with death blazing out from every inch of parapet finally at the end of the second corps that gallant host which in losing fifteen thousand men in battle had never lost a colour or a gun note twenty one page one twenty three he rode into the first day's clash at gettysburg having been set for the moment by meade over the head of seniors such as howard and sickles the selection was an ideal one and it showed meade's skillful estimate of his generals hancock found the troops shattered and demoralized by the first impetuous onset of the southern army broken regiments panic-stricken were streaming to the rear amid an inextricable tangle of horses wagons ambulances and artillery trains the Confederates already held Seminary Ridge and the town of Gettysburg itself, while great masses of their infantry could be descried sweeping ominously forward in what appeared to be an illimitable host. To meet them there were in line only the broken remnants of the brave First Corps and a division of Buford's cavalry. It was at this critical moment that Hancock, hurrying to the front, arrived and took command. Never was the magic of martial genius more instantly perceptible on the instant a change lightning-like was wrought in that grim scene of panic and despair the rout was checked the broken regiments were reformed the drifting guns were swept up and massed in batteries and so skilful a disposition was made of the now heartened troops as to stay for the time the confederate advance note twenty two page one twenty four amid this scene hancock bestrode his horse cool calm self-possessed the master of himself and of his place the captain of a main battery note twenty three page one twenty four afterwards wrote i shall never forget the inspiration of his commanding controlling presence or the fresh courage he imparted his whole atmosphere strong and invigorating it was hancock who upon his own responsibility altered the plan of battle that had been arranged by meade he selected the now historic cemetery ridge as the key to the union position planted cannon on its crest and strengthened the force already stationed there it was upon the summit of this hill that hancock reached the climax of his fame on the third and final day of the great battle the confederate artillery began the appalling cannonade which was the prelude to pickett's heroic charge one hundred and fifteen guns hurled in an appalling and infernal crash a cyclone of projectiles against the union lines which were soon to meet the breaking of a human storm it was a scene to terrify the stoutest heart and some of the regiments which lay upon the ground amid the exploding shells had never been under fire before then in the midst of this roaring hell hancock sitting his great black charger with the corps flag borne beside him and followed by his staff rode slowly up and down the lines as calm and even joyous as though upon a holiday parade the sight was indescribably thrilling and the men who saw him not only held their ground but forgot the storm of bursting shells in their admiration for their leader later when longstreet's fourteen brigades were hurled against the ridge hancock met them at the head of the defenders and then at the very moment when the charging columns wavered and recoiled hancock was stricken down yet still he would not leave his place and when a vermont regiment swung to the front hancock with his blood spurting in great jest from a ghastly wound cried out to the commander joyously go in colonel and give it to them on the flank when they bore him from the field it was amid a burst of tremendous cheering which told that the crucial struggle of the war had been won by the soldiers of the union in the following year though his wound was far from healed he served with the same intrepidity and efficiency under grant whose praise he won in the wilderness and amid the carnage at the salient hancock's patriotism was as unalloyed as was his courage when mcclellan was summarily removed from command of the army after antietam many of his brother officers were so indignant as to make remarks which verged on open mutiny but though hancock loved mcclellan he made but one reply we are serving our country and not any man when after the war he was made military governor of a part of louisiana and texas he showed himself to be no satrap but one who felt profound respect for civil law he did all within his power to discourage trial by military commission instead of before the courts he believed that the reunion of all sections of the country would be most speedily effected by treating the intelligent and patriotic men of the south in a spirit of confidence and of generosity rather than that of harshness and distrust hancock was the only trained soldier of equal eminence and achievement who during the civil war never rose above the rank of corps commander it was not his fortune to direct the operations of an army in the field the chance which gave this opportunity to burnside pope and hooker passed hancock by it may be that like them he would have failed yet what he actually did accomplish makes the contrary seem probable he is perhaps the only officer of conspicuous rank of whom it could be said as grant declared of him that his name was never mentioned in dispatches as having committed a single military error Note twenty-four page 126 whatever was given him to do he did with the precision and perfection of an accomplished soldier he was perhaps too purely martial a spirit to be rightly appreciated in a peace-loving republic such as ours since with all its latent capacity for defence our nation like the english nation sets the victories of peace above the victories of war yet it is to the honour of the republic that in its hour of need it could summon forth to battle this soldier of heroic mould a type belonging to the high ideals of chivalry. End of chapter 3